0: Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible.
1: On this episode, you get to learn from Anna Surratt, one of the best teachers that I have met in the last few years. She spent a lot of time in public schools as well as in Christian schools, and she does great work with empathy-based leadership. She's great at empathy interviewing. She knows design thinking. She knows improvement science tools, but she doesn't use them as technical solutions. She knows how to dig into deepen relationships through vulnerability and building trust. And as she does that, I think she's helping grow stronger schools that better serve kids so i hope you enjoy this conversation with anna all right welcome into this week's episode we have a good friend of the baylor center for school leadership with us uh, has been working with us now for several years anna Surratt. we met her in an engagement with her school when we were in Atlanta, Georgia, she had come down. We should probably talk a little bit about that uh that first morning that we met after what your head of school did to you uh that would be entertaining, which we may get to at some point. but Anna is one of the best educators that I have run into uh in the schools that we've been working with in the last few years, and so like any good educator, when you find good educators, you find more ways to work with them. And so she's been a huge asset to educators through the center. So Anna, welcome to the Just Schools podcast. And if you would just give us a little bit of your background, how you ended up getting to a place where you're working with people like us at Baylor.
0: Sure. So uh, I've been in education for 18 years. I left college with an undergraduate degree in middle grades education in math and science and started as a, a sixth grade math and science teacher in North Carolina. Um, I spent several years in the classroom in North Carolina, California, and then in Virginia. And in my uh, fourth year, I believe, uh, teaching, I was invited to leave the classroom with nine other educators to start uh, an office in central and central office in this public school division that was intended to um, address professional learning f- for teachers from their perspective of teachers So, professional learning for teachers by teachers, uh, and it was really in that position that I developed a passion for the adult learning side of education. From there, I zoomed in and out of central office leadership into school-based leadership, serving as an assistant principal, um, content specialist, and um, then back into central office as a coordinator for professional learning. Uh, And then about three years ago, uh, the Lord really opened my eyes to to some things. And uh, in just a season of prayer, an opportunity opened up for me to step out of the public realm and into the private Christian realm where I serve as the director of lower schools um, for Norfolk Christian schools in Virginia. And in that position, I met you. Um, so we were part of an improvement community that got started in Atlanta, Georgia, about three years ago. And in that experience, I recognized many of the tools that were being used for my time in leadership development. And that's kind of how our conversations and our connections began.
1: It was so great because you were aware of the Center for Teaching Quality and the work that we had done there, and I've worked with them since 2010. And so, some of the tools you were talking about, you were you were excited about the fact that you were working with someone who had helped develop those tools, and it was one of those proud moments when you find a good educator that's used tools that you hope are beneficial, but you're not sure that they are. Uh, that was a huge encouragement, but we have to back up to that morning for just a minute, because we were there and your team was pretty exhausted. Could you you give us just a little bit of a picture about why your team came into that meeting so exhausted? Because this is one of my favorite stories. I love the head of school you have at the time. I want to make that clear. We don't have to mention his name, but uh, this was a great story. Could you just share why you were so exhausted?
0: Yeah. So our flight was delayed. So we got in really late and we headed to downtown Atlanta to an extended stay that was booked <laughs> for us. And, you know, it's close to like maybe midnight at this point. There's some pretty unsurly characters coming out of the hotel. Um, I'm the first to get my hotel room. So I go up to, to my room, exit the elevator into a cloud of smoke. Um, My room was still in disarray from whoever had been in there previously. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm feeling a little judgy right now. I'm sure that this is a safe and reasonable place for us to stay. So I'm in my room trying to figure out how maybe I can sleep without touching anything. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, I get a text from a couple of the other women in the group. And one says, I'm not feeling very comfortable here. There's pills on the floor of my bedroom. (laughs) Wow. then the next text comes in from our head of school saying that they're out of space and he will be leaving us to find um another hotel down the road and he was taking the other gentleman with him and i'm like wait a second the men are leaving us here <laughs> I'm like pack up ladies So we left and sure enough, he took us to another extended stay down, um, down the road. And I said, do not go in. We don't trust your opinion anymore. So we sent somebody else in to check it out. Not a safe place. I mean, while I'm Googling the uh, Marriott's and we found a safe place to stay around, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning.
1: That is outstanding leadership there. Uh so you, you you saw a need, you stepped in, you didn't need to be in a rat infested, drug infested. It said you said extended stay, but it sounds like it may have been more of an hourly arrangement that you were awesome. you were dealing with. But no, and and you you all came in though, the a credit to you all, you came in after that experience. I maybe you'd slept three or four hours. And you were super engaged the whole day, digging into real problems of practice that you deal with in your school and using tools to have hard conversations to actually move the needle ahead for kids. So, even with some of the adversity you'd face that night, you leaned into those tools really well, which helped me see the way you lead. And a lot of the stuff you do builds off design thinking principles and some of the empathy interviewing and empathy-based leadership. So, talk to us a little bit about how you're using some of those tools through the work you do through the center. through the work that you've been doing in both public schools and Christian schools, uh, what that looks like and where you have some hopefulness about where that's headed.
0: Mm, yeah, so I'll back up just a little bit to give uh, maybe a preface to, to the work of design thinking when it comes to um, leadership development um, and just overall change management. So, my my passion for this actually began when I was a coordinator for professional learning, looking for ways to help um, and support schools to solve really wicked and sticky challenges that they faced. Um, And so, with with design-based thinking, we're really aiming to match a process for change leadership and change management with a problem. Um, So, when we're thinking about these sticky, wicked problems, they're adaptive, uh, meaning that, you know, they're... They're really sticky because they deal with people's value systems, their identities, their loyalties, um, and they're, they're really hard to solve. And so with design thinking, it really slows the process down to understand the problem from the perspective of the people that are involved in it. And, and by doing that, you can better design solutions that actually are aligned to the needs that, that are part of the problem. Um, so kind of what that looks like, it can look like uh, very quick iterations of that. Uh, my current school is in a season of flourishing in terms of enrollment. And you know that meant that we were going to possibly increase the capacity of our classes this year. And so um, time was spent listening to the teachers to really understand you know what what that would mean for them from, from their perspective. And so I, I ran a quick protocol that I called Hopes, Fears and Bridges. And we asked, what are your greatest hopes um, in bringing in more students, and then what are your greatest fears, and how can we help you bridge from living out of your fears into living into your hopes, um, and, and looking at the connections between what their hopes were and what our core values are as well. Um, you know, longer processes processes of this might look like, and actually, this kind of jumped off of that that first improvement community that we were a part of. Uh, we we were asked to identify a, a challenge around observation, feedback, and evaluation. And within that, as I was listening to this new team of leaders that I was a part of, there were some tendrils of fear that I could hear. And uh, the, the solution that we came up with was a peer observation template. And I said, stop. <laughs> That's a technical solution for a really adaptive challenge. When we're talking about the emotion of fear, there's more to unpack here, and we need to understand this better. And a tool may not be, you know, the solution. It may be part of a solution, but not the solution. So, we paused and we talked to every teacher from pre-K through 12th grade to hear what their experience had been with observation, feedback, and evaluation. Asking questions like, uh, "What is your greatest hope out of observation, feedback, and evaluation? What are your greatest fears?" Can you share some stories about a time that feedback changed your practice? And what what we got helped us to better identify what the actual need was within that process. And it really was clarity um, because teachers were feeling fearful and anxious uh, because the process wasn't clear for them. And through the design process, we were able to, to prototype something that really valued the voice of the teachers and was innovative in a way that, really broke us free from the status quo.
1: Well, what I love about what you just described is you, you have to build trust before you can do any of these things. And so that empathy mapping and empathy interviewing is really important because it builds understanding. And so it does slow the process down. And so a lot of people hear that I'm like, Hey, we there's urgent needs. We can't slow things down. Well, They can either be messy on the front end or they can be messy on the back end, but they're going to be messy. And I much prefer to have a messy on the front end because then you tap into the collective intelligence of the people in your organization. And so you're getting to understand where there are issues. So if you would have jumped to the, quote unquote, adaptive solution of a peer observation tool, which is which is super helpful if you have trust that would have potentially eroded trust and made the problem even worse. And so again, Ronald Heifetz when he talks about adaptive challenges is talking about a challenge that with a problem and solution are unclear. And so what makes sense with empathy interviewing is if the problem and solution are unclear, we need to tap the expertise of the people in the organization. And so here's an efficient way to do that. And I think as you do that, it builds trust just by listening to someone else intentionally and listening with the intensity with which you want to be heard yourself. That changes a dynamic where. You get to and and you use the term solution, and I've become even cautious with that because there's a technical piece that feels like solutions imply that oh we're going to solve this. No, we're going to improve this. So if you're working in a place of low trust, if you build some trust, that doesn't solve all the issues, but that improves the situation. And so I keep pushing people to think about improvement as opposed to solution because sometimes that solution gets in the way of improvement because it feels like we're going to try to move too quickly. So as you've moved more slowly with your team, where have you seen progress that you maybe wouldn't have made had you moved quickly to solution type thinking?
0: Yeah, we're actually at a place now where um, trust has been built to the point that they trust one another and they trust us. So as we're thinking about what our professional learning goals are for the year, the teachers are actively involved in crafting the peer observation forms that they use with one another there's always that layer of safety where they're providing feedback to one another before feedback is ever given from administration. Um, I I wanted to circle back to something you you were talking about too, in terms of um, solutions. I often say that if we don't accurately diagnose the actual problem, the solutions that we apply will do one of three things. It will either cause a problem to still persist, um, to possibly be temporarily fixed and then, you know, resurface rear its head down the road again, or, Possibly worsen. So that slowing process actually ends up speeding up the change and making it more effective down the road.
1: Yes. So well said. So well said. One thing I'd like to ask you about, because this is how you serve us at the center, you serve so many schools, is we bring people together in networks where we bring schools where they're meeting across campuses voluntarily around a shared adaptive challenge where do you see the benefit of bringing other schools into this? Because sometimes schools kind of want to close ranks. They don't want to air their dirty laundry. They don't want other people to see where they're deficient. Even though we know every school can get better, there is a sense of we don't really want to share all that with people. So where do you see those networks maybe slowing things down at, at the beginning, but accelerating improvement on the back end? Where have you seen that happen?
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, vulnerability and the the challenges that we face is really where we step into the arena of courage with one another. And in these improvement networks, I think we have 24 schools currently. It really is a space of courage in which schools have found encouragement for, from one another. You know, often the challenges that we face, uh, we're not alone in that. And so it's a group where that says, I see you and you're not alone. Um, and that's the deepest level of empathy that we can extend toward one another, So there's been a lot of growth out of those improvement communities. Um, Just like you mentioned, it's not about a fix or a solution. It's about making progress toward a goal. And by being accountable with one another to here's what our aim is, and then checking in with one another monthly, you know, we're able to see progress across time. And that's, that's what our hope is that we can, we can have impact and change in these schools.
1: And and I love what you just said there, because again, the reminders we meet monthly to do this because what we're creating, we do have a goal. There's always an adaptive goal, but it's the habits that we build with each other that cultivate trust through vulnerability where that becomes habituated to the point where that's now the expectation and you get to situations like your school where now you have teachers working together on how we're going to give observation feedback to each other not for evaluation or judgment but for improvement because ultimately everyone wants to get better at what they do i mean that's just that's a human piece we, human need to be seen and known human need to get better i think those are intrinsic god-given qualities that we all have and your schools leaning into that so I, you know, again, we just make these interviews up as we go, but is there some anecdote or some piece of evidence that you'd point to in your school or in one of the networks that you've seen that you find to be super encouraging uh, from the work you've done over the last few years?
0: Yeah. I mean, when we first did the empathy interviews on the process of observation, feedback and evaluation, one of the stories that was told a teacher she explicitly said that there had never been a piece of feedback that she had received that had changed her practice. And that's that's heartbreaking, right? Mm. Like all of us enter into the profession with the aim to to impact others in a positive way. So, you know, from the leadership perspective, it really sent me on to my knees thinking like, well, how, how do we create the conditions by which feedback does lead to effective change for our students and for our teachers? And at the end of that year, she came to me and said, you know, I've, I've never been in a place where I felt safe enough to sit with an administrator and ask for feedback or give feedback. And I know that that's the case now.
1: That's amazing. It's so, it's so sad, but also then so encouraging. And And I don't know how many educators would feel like they could even say what she said at the beginning to be vulnerable enough to say she hadn't received that. And then then be opened up to actually receive ways to improve. And it's no wonder people burn out when they're in a profession where that, if that's a norm, that's really not going to be healthy and is anti-being a profession that functions more like an occupation than a profession. So, typically, we do a lightning round of questions at some point in our conversation. So again, we don't generally prep our people, but Anna listens to a lot of the podcasts, you know, some of the, my favorite questions to go to. So we'll start with one of my classics. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And what's the worst piece of advice you've ever received? You can take those in whichever order you want. You have a word, phrase, sentence, or a couple sentences to answer either of those.
0: Okay, so uh worst advice came from one of the first school leaders that I worked for as a as a school administrator, and he told me that I needed to change my perspective to the perspective of others around me and While I agree with that to some extent, I think I would really land on okay, how about it's understand the perspective of those around you and aim to stretch it. <laughs>
1: I think that's fair. I mean, that's taking uh, empathy to an unhealthy extreme that you're being required to actually take their perspective and make it your own. So that's that's good. I've not heard that piece of advice before. All right. And the best piece of advice.
0: Uh, Rita Pearson, kids don't learn from people they don't like.
1: Uh, Well said.
0: Relationship is the foundation for learning.
1: Rita Pearson is a goldmine, and sadly, we don't have her with us anymore, but I go back to the Every Kid Deserves a Champion talk regularly. It's one of the best eight minutes of invested time you can make. It's so much wisdom from so many years, but uh, that's, that's well said. So as you look at the um, year ahead in one word or sentence, what's the thing that makes you most optimistic about the work that we get to do? Hmm.
0: Permission to think differently about what we do mm. and why we do it.
1: Love that. What's the thing that makes you the most concerned about the year ahead?
0: Mm. Staffing. I think we're in a, mm. a season culturally in which the teaching profession is seen as just teaching. Like you talk about in your book, when it's not yep. just teaching, it's the job that makes all other, other jobs um, a possibility. And so I think we we have some Cultural work to do uh, that just leads people to desire to be and be excited to be in the profession of teaching.
1: So, if we have this job to do to help people see that teaching is a joyful, meaningful place, where, as Frederick Beekner says, the world's deep hunger and our deep gladness meet. We have prospective teachers in front of us every day when we're teaching, whether they're first graders or 12th graders or, for me, undergrad and graduate students. What's your recommendation? You know, you get 30 seconds for this one. Your 30-second recommendation for how to make our profession look like the kind of thing that talented, prospective educators want to step into i'll give you one additional piece as you think about that answer as ai changes so many professions i'm super encouraged about what that means for education because education is one of the most human things we do and as we try to automate so many things the human part of our work is what's going to become increasingly valuable things that only we as embodied souls student can do with each other. What's your best recommendation for how we sell this profession to prospective educators?
0: Tell stories and give them opportunities. Create the conditions by which our prospective teachers have an opportunity to see the impact of their words and actions on real kids in real time. The most effective thing I do as an educator is connect teacher actions to student outcomes because that's our fuel.
1: I uh, I cannot say that better. So I think with that, we will wrap this up. But Anna, first of all, thank you for all the amazing work you do for your students at Norfolk Christian. Thank you for all the work you do for the educators who then serve students through the center. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. As a school leader, Anna has so much wisdom about how to build relationships. And in the end, that's really what our work is about, is how to build relationships, is the world becomes increasingly technocratic and driven by tools, the human aspect of teaching and leading are going to become increasingly valuable. So, as she thinks about what Ronald Heifetz talks about with adaptive challenges and leading through habits that move away from solutions toward improvement, I think she has a lot of wisdom that could be easily applied, not making our work work harder and more complex, but making it more human and more life-giving. So, please enjoy the rest of your week in the profession that makes all others possible.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership.